from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. What a gift it is to be together this morning. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And now let us prepare our hearts for the worship of God as we wait on the choir. Tommy Hills, currently serving on the session here at First Presbyterian Church. Um, please join me in the call to worship that's in your program. In the midst of strife, God is with us. Come, O Lord, and pour your word into our hearts. In the anguish and grief of everyday living, God is with us. Hear our cries, O Lord, and quiet our spirits. Come. Let us open our hearts and spirits to the Lord. We come with confidence and hope in the presence of God. Come, let us worship the Lord. Listen now for God's word. O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high that I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Oh, where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I, t <laughs> it's true. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light around me become night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. I try to count them, they are more than the sand. I come to the end, I am still with you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second text is also part of the lectionary from Paul's letter to the church in Rome, the eighth chapter. Beginning in verse 12, concluding with verse 25, continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Break open your word afresh to us this day, O Lord, so that we will be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you are at the Ninth Street Beach in Avalon, New Jersey, during the second and third week of July, chances are you will see a very brave nine-year-old 
with his boogie board, seeking to master the barrage of waves making their way to shore. Our son Luke probably is on the beach right now, having gone to church at 10 o'clock, probably told his mother that he wasn't hungry. He hit the beach, I'm sure, already today with enthusiasm, and he is in the water. It's a daily routine when we are in Avalon, New Jersey. His two younger cousins chase behind him as they get to the beach, trying to keep up. Luke is now of an age that we are comfortable letting him do his thing while we read or take a nap or have a run on the beach. But at one point last week, Katie went to the edge of the water just to check on Luke. It was about an hour and a half since we had let him go, and she just wanted to see how he was doing. A few moments later, she came up to me kind of in a hurried pace and, and said with a concerned voice, Tony, you have to get in the water. Luke is getting crushed by the waves. Got up quickly and went to where he was. The waves were particularly strong that day. And as I identified Luke amidst all the other boogie boarders, sure enough, the waves were crashing in on him. Sometimes he would be able to, to jump it, and he'd jump high enough with his board that he'd stay above the water. But other times he just couldn't bring his little body above the waves. And sure enough, a wave would crash upon him and drag him under the water. The board would be floating for just a few seconds, and then all of a sudden his little head would pop up right next to it. I waded out to him, and I said, Luke, are you okay? And he looked at me with a certain measure of seriousness. He said, of course I am, Dad. This is part of the deal. If you're going to get the perfect wave, you're going to get knocked down a few times. I went back to the shore, but I stayed within sight of him, and, and I began to study his technique. He was willing to wait. He was willing to get knocked off of his feet. He was willing because he knew that when the perfect wave did come, he would ride it in glory to the shoreline. And that's what happened. You see, he considered the suffering caused by the waves crashing against him, sometimes even bringing him down into the ocean, that could not compare to the glory that would come when he would catch that perfect wave. For Luke, this experience was certainly not free from frustration. It was not free of exhaustion. It was not free of groaning after getting pummeled again and again by the waves. It was not free of salt water up his nose and sand on his face after he planted into the bottom. But he truly believed that all of that could not compare to what he would experience when he would ride in. Luke's perspective and confidence has congruence with how I read the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. Specifically, Romans 8, 18, where Paul writes this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I read that line hearing in Paul's words the same buoyancy and the same conviction and the same determination that I heard from Luke on the beach. There is a confidence 
in his tone, isn't there? Not an arrogance, but a confidence in terms of what will come in the future. What is to come at the end of history? Paul describes it with these phrases. It's the completion of our adoption as children of God. It's the redemption of our bodies, he says. It's the liberation of all creation from decay, from sin and death. You know, a few weeks ago, I picked up a similar theme uh, as we engaged Romans 7. If you were here a few Sundays ago, I talked about the struggle within. I talked about the ways in which faith is a struggle. I said the struggle itself is a mark. The struggle and the suffering is a witness and a testimony of sorts that we are by God's grace exactly where we need to be. Because if there is no struggle, I would suggest there is no faith. I love the way in which Lutheran pastor Elizabeth Ann Johnson puts it in some commentary about this particular text. She says this, life in the meantime is characterized by struggle. It's characterized by groaning and suffering as the inevitable conflict between belonging to God and being part of a creation and bondage to sin and death plays out. She says, Paul assures his readers that suffering is not evidence of separation from God. Quite to the contrary, it is a sign of living in the battle zone, of being indwelled by the Spirit of God, which is at odds with the rule of sin and death. It is in this very conflict between the purposes of God and the powers of sin and death that Christ Jesus suffered and died for our sake. You see, I think what she's saying here, and to add a word of summary to this paragraph, Christian faith is lived in struggle precisely because it creates struggle. Christian faith is lived in struggle because Christian faith creates struggle. In Paul's words, he says it like this, it's a struggle between a spirit of slavery and a spirit of adoption. It's a struggle between the bondage to sin and liberation in God's glory. It's a struggle between the futility and vainness of life and a purpose in life found in a hope of what God intends to do for you and for me and for all of creation. And Paul, as often, uh, rather often does this, Paul does this and so do many of the scripture readers, he gets real. He gets real. And he says this struggle produces frustrations. This struggle produces groans. It produces an eager longing for God to show up, for God to make things right, for God to put everything the way it ought to be. Right, so often we, we think of Jesus, and rightly so, as the one who, who sort of enters the fray of the storm. We have stories about this in the New Testament where he comes to the water and, and there's a violent storm. And, and what does he do? He calms the storm. And certainly Jesus does do that. But Jesus also is a storm maker. Jesus knows how to rock our boats. Because if you're living a life that's committed to him, to his call and his values and his passions, you see that that creates struggle with the values, passions, and desires of the world. Now, one of the underlying themes of this particular 
section of scripture is what I would call a continuity of experience. Paul begins to talk about a continuity of experience where he, he talks about the groans for God's glory that human beings have. He says that all of us in some way long for God, even if we can't find the words for that, that we long for God's grace and mercy and justice. But he also says that the whole creation groans for it as well. He draws continuity. He, he, he frames it in such a way that says there's continuity and congruence between our groaning and the groaning of all of creation. This is how he puts it. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And I don't want to miss this subtle point, but, but to put it in specific terms, our groaning and our longing and our hope, the very struggle itself, what Paul is saying here is that that struggle is communal. That struggle is communal. It's collective. It's not just one person over here, out there, disconnected, who's struggling. Paul says the whole creation struggles. All of humanity struggles. All of humanity longs for this. All of creation longs for this. And so this is not just about my struggle. This is about our struggle. It's about what it means to be a community that groans together and gets frustrated together and longs together for God and what God has said God will do once and for all. And I want to be very clear on this point. We struggle together as a church, uh, not in a misery loves company sort of way. Do you know what I mean? Not in a way where we get together and we, we sort of share our struggles, but, but actually what we're doing is, is sort of spiraling down deeper into our pain that usually makes itself manifest in bitterness and complaint. You want to kill a church, follow that spiral down to bitterness and complaint. That'll kill a church. That's not what Paul's talking about. That's not what I'm talking about here when we're talking about this collective struggle. We come together, and yes, we struggle, and we share the harder parts of our lives, and we share the harder parts of our stories together, not so we spiral down, but that we can lift one another up in hope. We struggle together for the sake of hope. That's what Paul is saying here. In solidarity, we remind one another of who God is. In solidarity, we tell the story of redemption over and over again. We read the words of Psalm 139 where God says through the psalmist that we are fearfully and wonderfully made and that nothing can separate us from God's presence. And we struggle together as a community of faith. And then we work for that future that God has promised, even as hard as we pray for it. We work for it together. And there's a word that I think is most appropriate in what I'm trying to say here today, and that word is compassion. The word compassion literally means to suffer with. And for Christians, I think we do well when we think about the word compassion, that we frame it under the word first of passion. And when we talk about passion in theological terms, our minds go to the cross. 
Our minds go to what Christ has done in his passion for us, that he moves toward us and is willing to suffer for us. It's a passion that is not passive. It is a moving passion that's willing to give his very life for the sake of the world. And when we talk about compassion, I think we should do it under the heading of passion and Christ's passion for us. We do it in Christological terms. What we're talking about here is moving toward each other the way Christ has moved toward us. That's what we do. That's the ministry of the church. And so that we struggle together, not alone, but together for the sake of hope. Uh, many years ago, a young girl living in Manhattan named Madeline moved to a new school. Uh, she was going into the fourth grade. Uh, she describes herself as a solitary only child. Her parents were almost old enough to be her grandparents, and they had a, a full life on their own. And so Madeline spent a lot of time by herself. Her new school was particularly known for their athletics. Madeline, however, had one leg that was longer than the other, and she found out quickly that she was unable to keep up with the athletic expectations that were pervasive in the school, and so she became uh, ridiculed. She became ostracized by her classmates. And for some reason, Madeline's homeroom teacher complied with the assessment of the other fourth graders and believed that Madeline wasn't very smart and pretty much could not do anything Right. Every piece of homework Madeline would turn in, this homeroom teacher would ridicule her and, and publicly shame her. As you can imagine, Madeline's self-esteem plummeted. She thought that she was dumb. She stopped doing her homework. Instead, she would spend her time, hours really, reading stories and then writing stories, struggling with the disparity with what she knew of her creative mind and what she was discovering in her own creativity and what everyone else was saying about her and her incompetence. Fourth grade ended, fifth grade began, and there was a poetry contest in her school. Madeline submitted a piece. The chief judge was the head of the English department. She never had Madeline in class, and she actually chose that poem as the winner of this contest. But when word got back to the homeroom teacher that Madeline won, she accused her of plagiarizing the work because in her own words, Madeline wasn't smart enough to compose such a piece. Madeline's parents finally moved her to a new school. And in that school, Madeline had a homeroom teacher who was fresh, brand new, first experience in the classroom. And she made a choice. She moved toward Madeline. She was the first person to see any potential in this shy, awkward child. She affirmed her. She gave her extra work. She struggled with her to discover that she was of value and that she had something to offer to the world. And so she, she had these wonderful extra assignments that she would give to her. She, in fact, made her write a sequel to the Odyssey with Telemachus as the hero. Her honoring of Madeline helped the other students to see her as something more than the girl who was bad at relay races. Her new teacher worked with her and helped her to realize what was possible, to see a future with hope that was distinct from the past. That teacher was Margaret Clapp, who many years later 
became the eighth president of Wellesley College. And that student was Madeline Langle, the author of A Wrinkle in Time, one of the most celebrated young adult writers of the 20th century. I'll close with this. The psalmist says it succinctly. We are fearfully and wonderfully made by God. We all have value, and God has passion for us. God is willing to struggle for us and with us and has done just that on the pages of history in and through Jesus the Christ. And much like Miss Clapp moved toward Madeline, that's what God does for us. God moves toward us in our struggle. But because God has moved toward us and because God has passion, we in turn have compassion and we move toward others. We don't run away from the struggle. We move toward the struggle, which means that we will groan. It means that we will get frustrated. It means that we will sense a deep longing in our hearts for God to make things right. But even so, we hope together. We hope together. We struggle together and we hope together. And that's what Ms. Clapp did for, for Madeline. And that's what we're called to do for one another to enter in and, and see God's future in a clear way where we can work for it and pray for it. She hoped with her. She set a vision of future glory. And I think that's part of the mission of the church. We're called to move toward the struggle, not away from it. And so I have a very practical question to end this sermon this morning. Who will we have compassion for in these days? Specifically, when you think of it in your own life and who God has brought into your life or what God has made you aware of, even in this moment, even in this time, on your heart and your mind, who do you know that is in the midst of the struggle? For one reason or another, who do you know that God is calling you to move toward? It may be somebody you're sitting near to this morning. It may be somebody you've been thinking about for a long time. It may be somebody that you've tried to avoid because the struggle is too hard, but that's exactly where God calls us to go. But we don't go there to sort of descend together in our pain. We go there. We go there to share hope, to see a future distinct from the past, and to work for it, and to pray for it, and to bear witness to the fact that God will make all things right once and for all, who is that person? And if you're the person that's in the midst of the struggle right now, don't walk the journey alone. You weren't meant to. We all long. We all groan. We all get frustrated. Faith does that. We're trying to work out this wonderful message of God's presence with us, and, and we measure it against so much of our life that seems out of place and out of whack. Don't suffer and struggle in silence. Invite somebody in. Move toward them. Struggle with them. Hope together. May it be so for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world and all of God's people say, Amen. Struggles that we experience that are really born from a longing for God are not ones that were meant to be lived alone. That we are called together as a church to struggle together and to hope together. 
for the future that we have heard in the gospel, for the futures, future we have prayed for, the futures we have sung about, for God's future, where God puts things right once and for all. So let's move toward each other. Move toward those who struggle inside these walls and outside of them and live into hope. And may the peace of God on that journey be with you. May it live inside of you this day and every day of your life. Amen. Amen.